All right, so let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to open us with a, word, with a word of prayer, and then we will jump into our, we'll jump into our study. So let's pray. Father, you are good. You are good for bringing us here today. It is a blessing to be with your people on your day. Um, give us cheerful, thankful hearts, Lord. And we're thankful that we get to learn about your word and the truths contained in it, even the hard ones, um, like, the, like the topic we are going to study over the next few weeks. Lord, I pray that we would have open minds, open hearts to your word, and that we would submit our, our lives, submit our beliefs fully to your word and not on our, not on our feelings or our emotions, Lord but help us trust in you and trust in what your word says for our lives. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are beginning a new Sunday school topic study over the topic of complementarianism. And I'm going to say that word a lot, so I hope I don't mess it up. Complementarian, I already messed it up. Complementarianism. Um, and we will be going through this book right here. It's called Men and Women in the Church by Kevin DeYoung. Men and Women. So if you want to grab a copy, we're actually not going to go through any of the content of it today, um, but we'll start going through it next week. Um, grab a copy of that book. And before we get into the specific content of the DeYoung book, I thought it would be beneficial for us to have a sort of introductory week where on the on just the broad topic of complementarianism. And what I want us to do is become familiar with some of the terms, peoples, um, statements, institutions, or, or a, a brief history of the complementarian movement. And then I want to pose and answer the question, why is it important to study complementarianism in our current context? And I'll answer that by looking at the threat, um, the threat to complementarian beliefs and convictions from the outside culture or the world, and then by looking at the threat to complementarian beliefs from inside the church that I think are, are actually growing. And my general thesis for today's lesson is this. I believe complementarian beliefs and Christians holding complementarian beliefs are under direct threat from our culture and even from some within the church. It is, it is growing more difficult for Christians to hold some of these basic biblical positions on what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And we as a body of Christ, we need to be equipped, we need to be ready to face the direct challenges to these beliefs that, that all of us will need to defend. And I think we'll, we will all have to defend these beliefs probably sooner rather than later, just given our current context. But first, let me provide a very brief definition of what I mean by complementarian. And this is the definition we're going to use throughout the study. And then we'll dive into the history of this term and belief. So complementarianism, in the most general sense, is the belief that man and woman are created 
with equal value and dignity in their personhood while distinct in their manhood and womanhood. And they complement each other by having distinct or different roles and responsibilities. I want to say that again because it wasn't as brief as I said it was. Um, <laughs> complementarianism is the belief that man and woman are created with equal value and dignity in their personhood while distinct in their manhood and womanhood. And they complement each other by having different roles and responsibilities, specifically in marriage and roles within the church. And that is not compliment spelled with an I, which is referring to right, a, a polite expression of admiration for each other, although we should be complimentary of each other. Um, but it's complement with an E, meaning a thing that completes or perfects another thing, like, like peanut butter compliments. Thank you, yes, jelly. So where did this idea come from? It may be surprising to you if you're familiar with this belief in, in this theological world that this term complementarian is, a, is relatively new in church history. Actually, it's, it's very new, really. But it's vital to note that the beliefs behind the term aren't new, but the term itself is, is new. Denny Burke, who is the, the current president of probably the most in, important complementarian institution, which is called the, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or the CBMW, that's how <laughs> I'll refer to it, um, Burke, the president there, has written a helpful article on the origins of complementarianism. And in this article, Burke makes the claim that the term complementarian wasn't coined until the late 1980s. And as we will see, much of the criticism of complementarianism is based on the, the supposed novelty or newness of the term and the supposed novelty of the beliefs that, that critics say are tied too closely with the baby boomers generation um, idea of gender roles. But I'm going to make the argument that though the term may be new in church history, the beliefs behind the term are definitely not new. They're not novel. Complementarian beliefs have been the wide, widely held beliefs of, of orthodox believers throughout the generations of the church. So where did the term come from and why? In 1986, a group of conservative evangelicals led by the popular theologians Wayne Grudem and John Piper met together in Atlanta, Georgia to discuss and strategize a response to the rise of feminism that they saw in evangelical churches across the United States. And specifically, they were concerned with the rise of women entering pastoral ministry in many, many um, Protestant denominations. And the position these, these scholars and pastors who, who met up in Atlanta were contrasting is what is known as egalitarianism. Egalitarianism. And this is the belief that there, there is no distinction between man and woman, specifically in their roles in the church and home. There is no difference. So there is a, a denial of male headship in the home, 
and male leadership in the church for the egalitarian. And this meeting in Atlanta was historically significant because it was the first meeting of the core group that would begin the complementarian movement. And so the next year, in 1987, the, the same group met in Danvers, Massachusetts, where they formalized the theological principles of this group into a statement. And this is where, of course, the Danvers Statement was formed. The Danvers Statement is still today the, the seminal document for complementarian beliefs. I hold to the Danvers Statement. I think our church does, yeah. Our church holds to the Danvers Statement. Kevin DeYoung, the author of the book, holds to the Danvers Statement. So in a real sense, if you want to understand complementarian theology, you don't need to look further than this statement. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Danvers Statement. And I encourage you this week, if you have time, just go on Google, look it up, look at the Danvers Statement. It's very helpful, um, just statement of beliefs of the complementarian movement. So, in 1988, this group of evangelicals, they were ready to take their statement and their beliefs public at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, or ETS for short, at Wheaton College in, in Chicago. And these scholars, remember Gruden Piper and a few others, they formally presented their statement and beliefs to the larger evangelical world publicly. And at ETS, they held a, a press conference. Uh, interestingly enough, the only media that made it was Christianity Today, um, which I guess isn't that surprising. Um, but they, they announced the releasing of the Danvers Statement and the formation of that, that critical institution, the, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is now housed at a very fine seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and again, this is the, the premier complementarian institution that writes articles and journals that help equip churches and Christians with, with complementarian thought and, and engagement in the world. And it's also an institution that is critiqued severely, which we'll get to in a little bit. But Denny Burke writes that the group coined the term complementarian at an initial breakfast for the, um, um, for the CBMW Council, the, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Council. And they picked the term, I think this is important, they picked the term because they thought it best represented the theological position summarized in the Danvers Statement. And ultimately, the theological positions they found clearly taught in Scripture. John Piper and Wayne Grudem in their book, which I'm going to reference this book a lot in this study. This is the, the pivotal complementarian textbook, you could call it. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, edited by Piper and Grudem. Um, but they write in, in that book, in the introduction, and they say, if one word must be used to describe our position, we prefer the term complementarian since it suggests both equality and beneficial differences between men and women. We are uncomfortable with the term traditionalist because it implies an unwillingness to let scripture challenge traditional patterns of behavior. And we certainly reject the term hierarchalist because it overemphasizes structured authority 
while giving no suggestion of equality or the beauty of mutual interdependence. So there have been some in the complementarian camp, I've seen this more in, in recent days, who would prefer the word that, that, that Christians use the word patriarchy as being a better term or a, a more biblically faithful term to the Christian belief. Most complementarians reject this because of all the, the, the negative connotations of the word. And also, I would say we should reject the term patriarchy because, at least in my opinion, it goes further than the complementarian belief or, or the Danvers Statement, what the Danvers Statement affirms. Patriarchy, at least how I understand it, promotes the idea that males should be the head of all of society and government and cultural institutions. And I'm not saying that belief is either right or, or wrong, but what I'm saying is biblical complementarianism has really only affirmed male headship in the family and the church and allows freedom for Christians to decide the view of the role of men and women in the rest of society. So it's a, it's a more narrow term complementarianism is than, than I think patriarchy. So I will not be using the term patriarchy in this study. Now what I want us to see in this brief history of, of the complementarian movement is to see that fundamentally this movement was not a sociological or cultural movement. That is to say the, the movement was and, and still is fundamentally theological. This is important because as we're going to see, many of the criticism of the complementarian movement deal with sociological arguments. That, that the founders of the movement were just pushing culturally conditioned views of what it means to be man and woman in their conservative Christian American culture, and then they were universalizing it for the rest of the world, for everyone else. And that is a rhetorically powerful argument, although I think it's, it's wrong, and, and the original founders of the movement, Piper, Grudem, Arkent Hughes, they definitely grew up in Western culture. But what they understood themselves to be doing and what they actually did was synthesize a theological position that is rooted in the scriptures and the historic Christian faith. And if the claims of complementarianism are primarily and foundationally theological, then any critique of these beliefs must prove how these beliefs are wrong from Scripture or, or how they are wrong theologically. So no mere assessment of sociological factors of the movement will suffice as a sufficient critique of the beliefs altogether. And that's not to say complementarianism is, a, is above reproach. There are probably culturally conditioned beliefs about men and women that can and should be critiqued within the movement. So don't hear me saying it's, 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 it's above critique. Those critiques, this is what I'm saying, those critiques can't be the reason to reject the whole system of belief unless you prove it to be wrong theologically, unless you prove it to be wrong from the Bible. So that's why I think it's... it's important to kind of get a brief history of, of the institution, the, the movement of complementarianism. Any questions, comments so far? 
All right, good. Now to the question of why do we need to study this at all? Why do we need to study this? If this is what our church affirms, this is what our church believes, why, what's, the, what's the reason? And before we go on to the threats that I see against complementarianism, I want to pose an idea to you. Um, I think given that this is this, this solidified position summed up in the Danvers Statement, it's, it's pretty new historically and has become very popular quickly amongst really most all conservative evangelicals. I think because of this, there has been an assumption of pastors and leaders of my generation and probably the generation before me. But the assumption is, well, yeah, of course we're complementarian because we, we, we affirm the Danvers Statement. We're, we're a complementarian church. That's just what our tribe is. And we have assumed the belief while not always teaching positively the positions of the belief or defending the positions from various threats to the belief. That is why we believe here that it's really essential we study this because the reality is, the reality is some complementarian beliefs are utterly reprehensible to the broader culture. They are viewed as, as, as wicked by the world. And if you just assume you believe a doctrine without being a, equipped with what that doctrine is or how to defend that doctrine against very real threats, then what will happen when you face opposition? I think what will happen is what is occurring in some parts of the evangelical world. You will abandon the belief because it's just an assumed belief you had because you were supposed to have it. You affirmed this statement. You did it because all of your, all of your friends say they're complementarian. But you don't really know what the belief is. You, 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 you can't defend it from the scriptures. So listen, this, this study is about equipping you guys with a positive view of what the scripture teaches regarding the role of men and women. Because the threats, as we're going to see, I think are very real to these beliefs. So we as a body need to be equipped, need to, need to have a sure foundation that our beliefs are from scripture, are theologically sound. So I think the threats to complementarian beliefs from the world are pretty obvious. I'm sure if, if you read the news or turn on the TV, you will see a story or a movie or a commercial that is telling a message, telling a story that is radically from an anti-Christian view on, on man and woman or, or human sexuality, of what it means to be man or woman. And so even though all of this may be somewhat familiar to us with the with the wide proliferation of some of these ideas, some of these ideologies, I think it would be very beneficial for us to get just a brief lay of the land of how our culture, how the world around us thinks about these issues. Because we're going to have to face someone who, who thinks this way eventually. Because as we'll see, biblical complementarianism stands in stark contrast to the message the world is sending to us, to, to our children. Um, so I want to start by saying that I think it's pretty much assumed that our wider culture has mostly rejected 
and may have for some time, I think it has for some time, but our culture has widely rejected the idea that man and woman were created for different roles in the home or in, in marriage. The idea that women were created equal in worth and value, but with different um, subservient roles in, in marriage and in the church, this idea is completely foreign to our culture. Equality of, of value, but also equality of, of role is really the name of the game today in our culture. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this and a lot of books written on why this is. But really, what I want us to see is that for some time now, the historic Christian belief that the husband is the head of the wife, as Paul taught in Ephesians 5, or, or the husband is the leader of the wife, that belief is just, just foreign to our culture. And I'm making a, an assumption here that that reality is, is not shocking to us, at least to most of us. I think what has been shocking to most Christians, and I would argue even more spiritually dangerous, has been the rapid pace at which our culture has rejected the first two affirmations of the Danvers Statement. And they read this way. Both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. Distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human heart. So these two affirmations just highlight that, that God has created humanity as, as both male and female, and they are distinct in their manhood and womanhood. This is not revolutionary, or at least I don't think it should be. But a growing belief in our culture, and it's hard to say just how popular this belief is, because I think it's, I personally think it's overrepresented by, by uh, the media and, and the arts. Um, but the growing belief is that our gender categories of male and female are actually just social constructions. They're, they're not actually rooted, or they shouldn't be rooted in biology. In other words, male and female are not rooted in creation. They're, they're rooted in culture. And again, I'm not going to get into why people believe this. They're, 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 there's really around 300 years of philosophical thought and development that has led to us in this moment to the rise of this ideology. But I will suggest the book, if you're interested in that sort of thing, I would highly encourage you to read the book, The Rise and Triumph, of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Truman, literally, he just gives a, a chronicles a history of the philosophical thought in the West that has led to where we are in our understanding in the broader culture of gender and sex. And it's, it's very good. I mean, it's pretty dense, but it's, I think it's one of the best books I read last year, so I would highly encourage it. Now, the result of not rooting male and female in creation in our culture has honestly led to, I was trying to think of a term, I couldn't think of a better term than insanity. Right? The acronym LGBTQ seems to add new letters at a rapid pace. Right? They just add a plus sign at the end of it to include anything else that might come up because all of these new identities are appearing. 
And the insanity, at least if you believe in a created order, which all Christians must affirm, the insanity is the idea that something as fixed as biological sex, the way God made you, the way one is born, the way one is created, is now popularly viewed as more of a spectrum. So you have on the one end male and the other end female, and every human is not fixed to a set binary, either male or female, but every human exists on this spectrum, right? So a biological male, because of a number of factors, can place themselves wherever they want on this spectrum, regardless of how they were born or how God created them biologically. So they, they, they can choose to be a girl or a boy or somewhere in the middle or both. And the term used to describe this, which you've probably heard, is non-binary. These would encompass any individual who does not view themselves as a fixed part of this gender binary, male or female. This is set in contrast to what is called cisgendered people, those individuals whose gender identity corresponds with their biological sex. So cisgender would be the majority of people in our culture and the vast majority of people who have ever lived. Now, the reason, there is a reason I'm going into this, because what is happening today at a growing rate is to is that if you say there is a gender binary, something as basic as that, and that individuals should identify with the sex that they are biologically born with or that, they are, that God has given them, that view more and more is viewed as hateful, even as crazy. And Carl Truman in his book helpfully highlights how what has been the commonly held position throughout human history until really a couple years ago that, that boys are boys and girls are girls, that view is now growing to be taboo, which is it's, it's honestly quite astonishing. It's not acceptable to talk about in certain company. And listen, this isn't just a problem for university campuses where these ideas proliferate, or, or Hollywood, who, who clearly overrepresents this view in their art or really every big business in this country who clearly affirms or at least portrays they affirm this ideology because it, it's what profits them today. All of that is true and very worrisome. But what is truly threatening to us, the church, is that governments are now adopting this gender ideology. Last week during this time you guys prayed about Canada. Um, Canada has just passed a law in their country that bans what is known as, as conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is broadly defined in this law as anything that would alter or seek to suppress the desires of gay, trans, or non-binary persons. So Christian counseling would even presumably be under this umbrella of conversion therapy. This is very bad for religious freedom, and this is, this is bad for our neighbors from the north. This is why we prayed about it last week, and I've seen laws um, even in this country that are very similar, one in Indiana, um, that is very concerning. 
But I want you to just listen, just listen closely to the, to the preamble of this law in Canada and listen to the form of argument that is being made here. This is, again, this is the Canadian government. They say, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society, because among other things, it is based on and propagates, listen to this, myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. It is a myth to believe living as identifying with the sex that you are born with is more beneficial. That is a myth to the Canadian government. And notice here the Canadian government is calling any idea, including the Christian one, that, that gender conforms to the biological sex is normal and good, and that, and that heterosexuality is normal, like this should be the norm for humanity. They're calling that idea a stereotype, a myth. So the Christian worldview, the whole Danvers statement, what we affirm as a congregation, according to this government, is a myth, and it is harmful to society. And I think this is honestly frightening in, in some sense. And these types of ideas that, that governments can say the biblical worldview on male and female is a myth, like, like some Greek mythology, I think that is a, a big threat. I would actually even say I think that is the big threat to complementarianism by the world in our days, by those in the outside culture in our day. So I think we must be well equipped to engage this, this, this coming storm on these issues. And in many ways, the storm is, is already here. The pressures we're going to face from the world to, to cave on complementarianism, I think, are going to be massive. And the hope of this study, the reason we want to do this study, is to ground our understanding in Scripture. So that when we are faced with pressures from outside the walls of this church, outside of this congregation, or even our views become illegal by the government, we won't abandon them because we are a people that hold on to and submit fully to the word of God above all. So that's why we are trying to e equip you with what the Bible says on these issues so that we can hold firm to God's word, even amongst a, a very hostile world. Now that is bad, but it's not all the bad news I'm going to share. Um, as I mentioned earl earlier, there's also threats to complementarianism from within the church that I think are, are maybe even more dangerous in some ways. But before we go there, any questions, comments? I would say that. I affirm that, yes. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I should have put that in there.
but I've been fo- I was focusing on the threats um, that I see as there. But Blake's right that we're not just defending a position, right? That the the Bible's design, God's design, is beautiful and it is good, and we are going to see throughout this study the good, beautiful design. <clears throat> that God has created for man and woman, and we are going to celebrate that um, and, and show how that leads to our ultimate flourishing. Well, one other, just throw the Bible out, and all this beauty in the you know, Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's exactly right, and, and a really big, really big danger. Yeah, that's a very good point, that, that we need to be equipped to equip our, our young people, our children, right? Because that, right, we're starting the, the youth ministry next week, and one of the burdens I feel is they are going into a world that is unlike any of us that we've gone into. Even me, I was in high school not that long ago, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, so I'm pretty young. But it, it, it's a radically different than even just a decade ago. Um, and so it's not just the parents in here. All of us have, I think, a responsibility to help equip, help, help set a positive vision of what God, God's Word teaches on these issues so that they have a foundation um, that, that, that they don't fall into the sinking sand of, of our culture. Thank you for that. That's a great comment. Yours too, Art. Yours was, yours was good. <laughs> That's true. Yes, I, I think, you know, yeah, yes. Um, so, threats. Let's move on to threats to complementarianism that I see um, from within the church. And it's coming from primarily what some pastors and theologians are now calling, this is a new term, I just saw it a couple months ago, um, the deconstruction project. So that's what I'm going to be referring to, the deconstruction project. In fact, I'm taking this turn from, from Jonathan Lehman. He's the editor of Nine Marks, which is a ministry, a complementarian ministry. Who He released an article a comp- couple months ago highlighting many of the same problems I'm about to present. And Kevin DeYoung, again, the author of our book, has also written quite a few articles in the past year, similar articles about these issues, and even reviews some of the books that I'm going to be talking about. But the Deconstruction Project, remember this is a a Christian, or a a so-called Christian idea, is rooted in the belief that all Christian doctrine and theology is culturally conditioned and ultimately self-interested. Meaning that conservative evangelical doctrine, what we affirm true as Christian beliefs, primarily exists to these people. So those whom it benefits stay in power. And really this comes down to two categories of people for these types of scholars. Minorities and women. So... The idea is evangelical, Protestant doctrine, typically Reformed theology, but but also just just all forms of conservative evangelical doctrine, 
the idea is these doctrines are so culturally influenced that that through our affirmations of Christian doctrine, we are upholding white male power that is, that is actually characteristic of our culture. So, of course, I reject this pretty much wholeheartedly. I think this is, is bad, but this is what the deconstruction project, as Lehman is talking about, this is what that um, project is doing. So there, there are many scholars, usually socio- sociologists or uh, historians, who are writing books and articles that seek to deconstruct. Sometimes they will say decenter. Sometimes they will say decolonize. Um, what they call white patriarchal Christian doctrine. And the massive issue is what they end up deconstructing is what the church has always affirmed to be true. And they're left with a a very liberal theology, and in some cases, really no theology. They strip away all Christian truth until they believe none of it. And they they abandon, they're not grounded in any sort of orthodoxy. So that is the great danger here of this deconstruction project. One way to illustrate what I'm talking about is that these individuals who adhere to this or or who who practice it would, would care less about whether or not the Westminster Confession, they would care less about whether the confession, what it is saying is true to Scripture or not, and would rather ask the question, was there any minority or female representation in the founders of the confession? Because if the Westminster was made by just white men, then they, I, they either are consciously or unconsciously putting in beliefs that would preserve their power. You see, being true to Scripture, having correct doctrine, is not the fundamental criteria for what should be believed. And again, this is really, I think this is really dangerous and corrosive to um, biblical faithfulness, biblical orthodoxy. Now, one caveat, there, there are many Christians using this term deconstruction today. So you might read something on a website or a magazine. If people read magazines, I read magazines, but Christian magazine. Um, and they might say deconstruction and they might mean something else. I don't think everyone is using this term in the same way. Some Christians are using the word in the way I just described, which I think is bad, should be rejected. Others are just saying it as, as more of a synonym for the word reform. So the church needs to deconstruct her beliefs in the same sense that the church needs to um, be reforming or, or always be reforming her beliefs. That is much different than the, than the deconstruction project that Lehman and DeYoung are talking about. Although I would say it does make this whole topic very difficult, and I wish they would just say the word reform if that's the word they meant, but you know, I can't always get what I want. Um, so it does make this, this topic a little bit complicated. But I'm specifically talking about a, a, a specific disposition towards theology. Um, now this has everything to do with complementarianism everything to do with complementarianism, because one of the key beliefs that is under deconstruction most in our current moment is the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality. 
And Lehman highlights two books that have sold incredibly well in the past year, in 2021, by Christians. Christians are buying these books that are an example of Christians deconstructing complementarian beliefs. And for the record, I'm not recommending these books. So, yeah. The first one is called The Making of Biblical Womanhood by a Baylor professor, Beth Allison Barr. Um, She's writing from a Christian perspective, and this book is for Christians. The thesis is simply that the teaching of female subordination and, and in the home and in the church is a historical construct rather than a clear biblical teaching, which is the claim of complementarianism. So she is a historian, so much of her argument tries to prove this from a, a from various historical citations, specifically focusing on the, the medieval church and the role of women there. The second book that I think is even more popular, I, I've seen I have read uh, portions of this book. Um, I believe it was one of the best-selling Christian books for some time last year. And this book is called Jesus and John Wayne. Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumez. She teaches at Calvin College. Um, She's another Christian historian teaching at an evangelical college, or or I guess what what used to be one, But in his article, Lehman says that the main argument of this book, and I agree with this, is that white evangelicalism is characterized by patriarchy, toxic masculinity, authoritarianism, and nationalism. And the implication is that it is the evangelical beliefs, the the complementarian beliefs, that lead to all of these things. It's the theology that is leading to all of these reprehensible things. And she spends much of her time in this book critiquing complementarianism as leading to toxic masculinity in churches and to abuse in churches. And that's really the key one, that complementarianism leads to abuse. And so those, she, she argues, those wicked things are inherent to complementarian beliefs. And I would also add probably the most... Uh, uh, probably the most popular uh, podcast last year, um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, at least Christian podcast. It's put out by Christianity Today. If you don't know about it, it's a, uh, a podcast that chronicles the, the sad history of the ending of Mark Driscoll's church in Seattle. Mark Driscoll was a, a, a complementarian um, conservative pastor. Um, but this 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 podcast highlights much of his disqualifying behavior that led to the demise of that church. But there's a lot of commentary on the podcast that assumes the idea that, that much of Driscoll's issues, especially his abuse of authority, stemmed from, came from his complementarian theology. This is the same kind of arguments being made, used in these books, that fundamental to complementarianism is abuse of power and abuse of women. Now, in rejecting the, the deconstruction project, which I do, I think we must, but in rejecting these ideas, I'm not denying or minimizing the reality that there, there are some complementarians who use the precious biblical truths about male and female wrongly and abuse women in their lives. There are accounts in these books that are true, um, 
of horrendous abuse by husbands and pastors who, who claim the name of complementarian, who, who abuse their authority in, in reprehensible ways. And as complementarians, we should and we must reject those abuses strongly. And in some sense, complementarians must be the loudest and strongest against any form of abuse because of our biblical view and convictions of the worth and value of women. That is a non-negotiable. But what makes these work a threat, though, and why I don't think we should be consulting them or, or, or using them, even though they, they might highlight some true stories, is that the conclusion these individuals who embrace this ideology are coming to, right? Remember, it's the, it's the reason for the abuse, the reason for the oppression is because of the theology. That's the claim being made. So do you see the danger? It is because complementarians teach that women submit to their husbands and, and women cannot hold the office of pastor, that those beliefs are the reason that abuse occurs. That is the reason that oppression occurs. Complementarianism then, for them, necessitates abusive behavior. Therefore, we must deconstruct, we must strip apart the beliefs of complementarianism. We must reject it. Now, the first thing I want to say to this critique is that it's not true. It's not entirely true. <laughs> At least for this type of thesis to work for me, probably for you too, you would have to prove that egalitarians and non-Christians abuse women or oppress women at less rates than complementarians. And I have yet to see a study that proves this. I'm open to it, but I've yet to see it. And just by looking at the broader culture, just think of the Me Too movement of the past couple of years. There were scandal after scandal after scandal of non-Christian men abusing women in various contexts, and I can guarantee you those guys weren't complementarian. Complementarianism wasn't the cause of their abuse. It seems a better way to understand of what is happening in our culture is that humans being sinful abuse the authority God gives them. And that includes sometimes complementarians. But to me, you can't single out one group or one ideology as the reason for the abusive behavior. But another issue I have with this line of thinking, probably the, the, the bigger issue is that it's a terrible way to do theology. It's a terrible way to do Christian theology or come to Christian beliefs. Because what we need to be asking is this. Is complementarianism, is complementarianism taught in the Bible? That is the fundamental question. The Bible is our standard of truth. We submit to the teaching found in Scripture. So regardless of the, of the sociological and historical analysis of the complementarian movement, I urge you that that always must be secondary in our analysis whether the belief is true. So the main danger I see in the Deconstruction Project, and this is Lehman's thesis in his article, is that it puts historical and sociological analysis on par or even above Scripture or, or, or doctrine, what Scripture teaches. 
And listen, that is always going to result. It always had, it always will. That is always going to result in devastating effects to your faith, to our faith, if we embrace this kind of disposition. And I think it's currently leading to some, to some devastating results in the evangelical church of Christians who are embracing this type of ideology. Again, I want to, to stress, this does not mean complementarianism is above critique as a movement. It's not. We, we should welcome critique. We should welcome questions and appreciate exposure of blind spots. But we first, we must first turn to the Bible. Again, I'm going to say this over and over again. We have to turn to the Bible to see if the claims of complementarianism, if the claims of the Danvers Statement, to see if those claims are true. So, in closing, that is why we're doing this study. Again, I feel like I'm just saying the same thing over and over again, which I am, but it's important. We are going to spend the next couple of months exploring what the Scripture says about what it means to be man, what it means to be a woman, and how God has designed those two. And my prayer is that we would all come to and that we would all come out on the other side with a firmer conviction in what the Bible teaches on these issues. We are going to engage the, the controversial passages on, on women's role in the church, and we're going to engage the, the passages that are broadly accepted by most every Christian. And, I, and what I want from all of this as we, as we engage on this journey, is to keep the book, to, to keep the Bible the standard. And our assessment of complementarianism must be grounded in assessing what, what Scripture says. Because I'm convinced, the, the, the elders here are convinced, that complementarianism is the best summary, the most accurate position that takes into account all of the bi biblical data on these issues. So we're going to be, I'm going to be teaching, we're going to be teaching from a, a, a positive view of complementarian theology. But I, I look forward to going through this book. Please get it. Again, it's men and women in the church. Um, next week, we're going to start in this book, um, chapter 1, and we'll begin examining, by examining Genesis 1 through 3, which if you think about it, really is the foundation for everything the Bible teaches on manhood and womanhood. So it might be the most important week. Um, actually, all the weeks are equally important. You should come to all of them. But, but that is all I have. Any comments or questions we have? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I, I agree. That, that, Agreed. I think it, it, the most basic thing, like I said, is, is sin, right? There's some sort of sin that is causing an abuse. Agreed. And you highlighted how hard it was to say that word 50 times, so. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, the, the biblical truth suppresses 
Yeah, I don't know where you're going with that art. You're going to have to explain it more for me. <laughs> I was trying to go with you there. <laughs> but it's good. Is that what you're saying? Oh, good, good. All right. More time. <laughs> That's right, yes. I agree with Aletha. Sorry. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. Agreed. What were you saying? Yeah. I was going to mention you brought up how Hollywood over represents the egalitarian perspective. Well, I was talking more about like the LGBTQ plus. And Amarillo. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good point. And, and I think you could say abuse is always self interested and, and, and sinful. And like you said, the call of male headship, male authority is inherently sacrificial. So, my argument here is, is complementarian beliefs, which you were just affirming, sacrificial Christ-like leadership negate or, or, or protect against abuse, which really just, again, makes these claims of some of these books, I think, troublesome. Because they're not looking at the actual truth claims. They're looking at other data from, from sociology or history. And then assessing the truths of the complementarian or the Bible um, based on that. But thank you all so much for listening. This was great, and we'll see you next week. Y'all are dismissed. <laughs>